Hello, and thank you for joining the second season of Title Nerds, presented by the law firm of Riker Danzig. Each episode features one or more of Riker Danzig's thought leaders in the title insurance law space, discussing current legal trends and issues of significance. Please remember that nothing shared on today's podcast should be considered legal advice in any particular matter. Now let's welcome Michael O'Donnell, Riker Danzig's co-managing partner, and partner Bethany Abley to kick off our podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael O'Donnell, and I'm with my co-host, Bethany Abley. We're from the firm of Riker Danzig, and we're here for episode five of Title Nerds 2023, and we're excited today because we have really one of the foremost experts in title in the state of New Jersey and in colonial history and most things historical about New Jersey, Joe Gravis. And he's going to discuss his background in the title industry with us and talk to us a little bit about what's fascinating in the title issue in New Jersey, Thailands, which um, not all states have Thailands, but New Jersey is one of the larger states with Thailands issues. We also have one of our team members, Jim Mazuski, who's going to talk about the case of the podcast with Bethany. And with that, Joe, welcome. And just can you give a little bit about your background in the title industry so they can know from whence you came? Sure, Mike. Good to be here with you today. I've been in the title business for 45 years. Came right out of out of high school and I've uh, been involved in all facets of title. I even owned a surveying company for 10 years. I've really tried to make this my craft and worked hard at developing my abilities and skills. I was one of the first five individuals in the United States to be named a national title professional. I'm a certified title professional locally here in New Jersey. I'm the past president of the New Jersey Land Title Association. I just got back from Colorado, where I serve on the American Land Title Association Education Committee, where we try to present educational programs for the industry. I've served on the Tidelands Council now for 11 years here in New Jersey. I wrote a book called Owning New Jersey. If you're interested in history and you're interested in real estate, run out and buy it. It's not a bad read. But, you know, we are here today to talk about Tidelands, and and I have been doing this for a while, and we are unique in New Jersey in the way that we deal with Tidelands issues. Joe, can I just interrupt you for one second? Sure. Because you forgot something. You got this thing called the Gravis Institute. Why don't you tell us about that as well, and then we can get the Tidelands. Okay. Well, the Gravis Institute, we provide uh, continuing education for attorneys, realtors, and insurance producers throughout New Jersey and Pennsylvania. And we do CE sessions all over the country, quite frankly, through virtual webinars. And we really, we've been doing this since 2008. I've been teaching since 1988. So it's really been successful for us. And it's what I do mostly these days. That and I do a lot of forensic title work as an expert in real property litigation. So that's really what I do these days. I'm not a title agent anymore, although I was for years. And I spend most of my time trying to help other people understand title. Okay. Now, just explain this to our audience a little bit about 
how Thailand plays in in purchasing real estate in New Jersey or borrowing on real estate in New Jersey? Sure. Well, all states that border tidal waters, the Atlantic Ocean, the Gulf, Pacific, are affected by tidelands and the right of the state to land under the water. And that, that's a concept that goes all the way back to the Romans. And it's important for commerce, for navigation. But in New Jersey, we've taken it a little bit further. In uh, 1968, there was a famous case called O'Neill versus New Jersey Department of Transportation. And it questioned exactly what the extent of the rights of the state of New Jersey were. And the Supreme Court decided that the state not only owned lands currently flowed by the tide, but formerly flowed by the tide. And that is very different than most other states. Most other states only assert their rights to the currently flowed tidelands. And the problem with that for property owners is that they might buy a piece of property that hasn't been flowed by the tide in over a hundred years. They walk up, they see it, it's completely dry. There's no water anywhere in sight. And yet, in fact, the state of New Jersey claims ownership of 75% of that property, 75% or more or less. And the state of New Jersey expects to be paid for that. And according to the Supreme Court, they're entitled to be paid for that. And so after that case, the legislature passed a law requiring the state to map all of its claims. And they did between 1973 and 1982. They mapped the various claims. They filed the maps in the county clerk's office and with the secretary of state's office. And that was the extent of their public notice, of their constructive notice to their claims. And most people are not aware of it. And because of that, the Tidelands Council, which I sit on, which was created originally in 1869, who is a sort of a quasi-judicial body that stands between the property owner and the state of New Jersey and tries to decide the validity of the claims of the state and the ownership interests of the individual property owner. And we decide how much people are going to have to pay, or if they're going to have to pay, to buy their own land back from the state of New Jersey. And sometimes it can be considerable, especially since most of these properties are in and around the Jersey Shore area which the value of those properties is considerable. In most cases, the land is much higher, the value of the land is much higher than the improvements on that land. And so we've had cases where the state was asking for over a million dollars for their property to be bought back. I can tell you that the title industry has paid out millions of dollars in claims over these Tidelands claims over the years. Originally, when the maps were first filed, almost nobody knew anything about them, and it was left up to title searchers to, to hand, hand trace title lines or claim lines on tax maps. 
Today, it's all done electronically. There are private companies that do it. It's all digitally produced. And the surveyors can go to a product that the DEP provides online that's much more exact. That's a good thing and it's a bad thing because what it does, it eliminates the de minimis claims. There are no de minimis claims. The state of New Jersey, if they feel they own one square foot of your property, they expect to be paid for it. It's that simple. How does one go about finding out if he's going to purchase a property, whether there's a title position? Particularly, you know, if you're ordering a title policy, how do you address that? And what type of properties should you be looking into and addressing it? Because I know you mentioned it short, but I've heard, I think it's true, per the state, 19 of the 21 counties in New Jersey are flowed by the tide because you've got to count the Atlantic and Delaware, et cetera. So how would you go about doing that, Joe? What would you say to your title agent? So the good news is that- Go ahead. The good news is that since 2008, the title industry in general has required all of their title agents and operations to order a Tideland search from a third party, okay? And there are several companies that provide these. And uh, because they were suffering too many claims. And it doesn't matter where the property is. The only place you don't have to order them is in the four counties that are not covered. That's Sussex, Morris, Hunterdon, and Warren. Every other county, doesn't matter how far away from the water you are, you have to order a Tidelands search. Now, what I would recommend, though, for attorneys is that the day they get a contract in, I would reach out to my title agent or company and order that. Say, I want that right now. I want that Tideland search right now, especially if it's in a shore industry. Because quite frankly, it could nix the whole deal. It's something, it's only $35. They're going to pay for it anyway when they order title insurance. They might as well get it up front. And if I can divert a minute, you know, Tidelands is not the only water issue in New Jersey. In fact, every single drop of water in New Jersey is regulated by the state in one level or another. And in fact, our regulations are greater than federal regulations. So if you happen to buy a piece of property and say it's in Morris County where it's there is no Tideland, but there's a beautiful creek running through the property, immediately you're gonna to wanna to order a wetland search, which is a regulatory issue, not a title issue, okay, but a regulatory issue. And it could affect how you use the property. It's a land use issue. Wetlands are protected areas and they're surrounded by buffer or transition zones. And those zones could prevent you from even cutting the grass on your own property. So it's something that you should order right up front while you're still in attorney review. Now, Joe, your search comes back and it shows titles but you still want to buy the property. How do you go about getting a title grant? Okay, so the first thing you have to do is get a survey. Quite frankly, if you're buying property in New Jersey and you choose not to get a survey, you're being foolish. All properties are surveyed in New Jersey. This is in Pennsylvania where they don't do surveys and everybody kind of gets along. Everybody's very serious about their property boundaries in New Jersey. 
But the only way to know exactly how much of your property is being claimed by the state is to get a survey and to get that survey done by someone who knows something about Tidelands. In other words, a surveyor that's located usually down in the shore area. I wouldn't hire a Sussex County surveyor to do an Ocean County survey. It just doesn't make any sense. And once you have that survey, then you can decide whether or not how much you are impacted by the Tidelands claim. And what we're talking about, a lot of our claims that we see are what we call the bulkhead bumpouts. Bulkheads deteriorate over time and they have to be replaced. And unfortunately, the DEP is conflicted about how they address bulkheads. You see, you have to go to the land use people to get a permit to replace your bulkhead because you can't do anything in the water without getting a permit from the DEP, a waterfront development permit. However, if by doing so, you encroach into the state's lands, you also need a Tideland grant. So you may get a permit to bump your bulkhead out 18 inches, but by doing so, you're encroaching upon the state's land. And now you need to get a Tidelands grant also, and it's going to cost you money. And invariably, we have these come on probably 30% of the matters that come before us every month are bulkhead bump outs where people have bumped out their bulkhead and they've encroached upon the state's land and the state wants to be paid for it. And if you're talking about a bulkhead that's 100 feet long and 18 inches wide, that can run into $20,000, $40,000 when you're dealing with short property. So it's really important to get that survey, once again, right up front, maybe even while you're still in attorney review. Now, of course, that's expensive. And I understand that. But the alternative is you find out about it afterwards, and then you get into the process of needing a grant. And now you're going to have to hold an escrow. The escrow is going to be double whatever the possible valuation is of the property, because no title insurance company in New Jersey will insure over these things. And they know that it's not an absolute science in the way that the valuations are calculated. So if it's going to be a $30,000 grant, it's going to be a $60,000 escrow. And that escrow will have to be held for a year and a half. That escrow is going to come from, hopefully, from the seller, because it's their responsibility to give good title. But of course, it's always open for negotiation. And so you're going to have somebody who's going to closing, a seller's going to closing, and they're going to have to hold $60,000 of their proceeds in escrow for a year and a half. That's an incredible burden. And it can end a deal right there. All right. So you've talked about the survey. We've got the survey. What comes next in the grant process? Just approaching the state? Well, you can do it one of two ways. You can, you can do it yourself. The applications are online. It's all e-filed now. But most people, we find, hire an agent. There are about four or five attorneys in the States who are specialists in Tidelands, and we see them before us every single month. If you're an attorney who has no background in this area, you may choose to recommend that, or you can handle it yourself. It's not rocket science. 
Okay. On the other hand, it may not be something that you feel comfortable doing. And like I said, there are four or five uh, regular attorneys that handle this all the time. Certainly, folks at Riker Danzig are more than capable of handling that sort of thing. But if you're a single practitioner and you're in Morris County and you got somebody buying a sure house, maybe you want to get some professional help from a specialist. Now, are there hearings, Joe? Because obviously the state's going to have one version of how much the land is and the seller or the buyer is going to have another version. And how do you hash that out? So the application is $250, simple thing. It goes to the Tidelands Bureau, not the Tidelands Council. Tidelands Council are unpaid private citizens who, like I said before, sit as kind of a quasi-judicial body. The Tidelands Bureau work for the DEP, and they are professionals in Tidelands. They're experts in this area. And they go and they take your application, they compare it to their maps, they have appraisers on staff, they go through the process, they'll reach back out to the surveyor, they may have the surveyor adjust certain things, there's certain requirements when you have a Tideland survey, it's not just any old survey, there's very specific requirements. And once they're happy with that, they will come up with a recommendation of the amount and the terms. And they will submit that recommendation to the Tidelands Council who meets the first Wednesday of every single month. That process usually takes about a year and a half. Once they present that, then the council has to look at it and decide whether or not they think that the amount is fair, reasonable, and whether or not it's eligible for any discounts. There are two specific discounts available, a good faith discount and a litigation risk discount. Those are both 75% discounts and it's significant. So if you can qualify for either, that's important. And that's one of the things that people who do this all the time, attorneys who do this all the time are aware of. Sometimes we disagree. I've had cases where we have one very very particular case called the Perry case, where the entire council voted against the recommendation. Our decision was overturned by the commissioner of insurance, who has the authority to do that. The commissioner, the attorney general, and the secretary of state can overturn our decision. Mr. Perry went and took it to court, pro se, and he won. The state appealed it, and he won again. And so it's a very important decision that affects the interpretation of Tidelands grants. And so once again, why you would want professional help, you would want legal counsel to help you in applying for a grant. And so we make those decisions, we vote on it, and then it usually takes another couple of months to get the grant issued and assigned and to the people uh, when they want to go and record it in the clerk's office. And just to be clear, when you say litigation risk, you know, one of those risks that would be posed by a buyer or seller's attorney would be that the state's just wrong. They don't own the land. And that's one of the things that triggers, maybe the principal thing that triggers that 75% discount if you can convince the state on that, right? 
That's correct. So the standard discount is if no remnants, in other words, no sign of that tributary show up on an aerial photograph from 1920 to date, you automatically get the litigation risk discount. Okay. However, the things, <laughs> the maps that these claims are based on go all the way back to 1851. And so I'm dealing with a case right now because I also do work as a consultant on tidelands issues, a case I'm working on right now where the property is on the Hudson River and I have reviewed the old CGSs from 1855, 56, 57, and I disagree with the interpretation of the map. The state says there's a claim there and I say there isn't a claim there. And I'm working for, you know, an applicant. I do that consultation. I can't appear before the council. I can't submit anything to the council, but I can consult with attorneys who are representing people. And of course, I have to recuse myself at the time of the vote. But in a case like that, the argument is that there is no claim at all. And that maybe instead of at least they would get the litigation risk, but maybe they don't have to pay a single dime, okay? All right, Joe, I think with that, I've sort of run through my battery of questions. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our audience about Thailand's? And if not, I'll turn it over to my co-host, Bethany Avery. No, I just want to say that, you know, it's important if you're on or near the water in, in any way to make sure that you get a Tideland search and if it reveals that, to make sure that you get a survey by a qualified surveyor. That's important. All right. With that, thank you very much. And I'm going to turn the program over to Bethany and Jim Mazuski, and I'll take it away. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Joe, for being here. Always great to see you. I know we've had a longstanding relationship here at Riker with Mr. Grabus for we've known you many years, Joe. Not, not all 45 that you've been doing this, but I, I've known you quite a few years now, and it's always a pleasure hearing from you. And you've always got something insightful to say, whether it's about the history of New Jersey or Tidelands or Tidal or anything in between. So thank you so much again for being here today. Well, I appreciate that. And thanks for having me on. All right. Now to our case of the podcast. Jim, what case are we going to be talking about today? Hey, Bethany. We're going to be talking about Hillary Developer LLC v. Security Title. It's a short little case, but I thought it was interesting. And it is from the New York Appellate Division, Second Department. Is that correct? Yes. And it is now a published decision as well. All right. And you know what? Might as well give everybody the site. It's 219 AD 3D 815 2023. And again, it's the Second Department of New York. So tell us what the case is about, Jim. So in November, it starts in, on November 18th, 2014, when one of the defendants Naomi cohen Sedek, which is a bit of a mouthful, so I'll just call her Naomi. She obtained about $270,000 judgment against this individual, Stephen Brown. And his first name is important, so remember that, Stephen. The same day she got this judgment, it was docketed with the Queens County clerk because Brown owned property in Queens. So that was November 2014. So fast forward about five years to 2019. And the case doesn't specify when specifically in 2019, but 2019. And Browd, using an alternate first name, Shraga, sells this Queens property to the plaintiff, Hillary Developer, LLC. And Security Title, who's a defendant in the case, 
it issues Hillary a title insurance policy on this sale. And the 2014 judgment was never satisfied from the sale proceeds. So after the sale takes place, and again, they don't say specifically on the date they find out, but Hillary learns that the property had been sold to a different buyer during a prior sheriff's sale, and that that sale had been held to satisfy the judgment. And because of that, Hillary then brought suit against Broad, against security title, and against Naomi, who was the judgment holder. And then in turn, Naomi, the judgment holder, she brought a third-party claim against SSS Settlement Services, which was security title's issuing agent. And she specifically alleged two claims. She alleged fraudulent concealment based on her never having been told of the additional sale and never having been told that Broad had an alternate name and a prima facie tort claim, which in New York requires that there be intentional harm, that it be motivated by malice, and that there be no excuse or justification for the actions taken. And then SSS moved to dismiss before the trial court, and that was denied. And then they appealed that denial to the appellate division. So I think that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) There was a lot in there. So A lot um, in there. I'm going to back you up for one minute. So tell us, who is SSS? Because I think that's the one that filed the motion to dismiss. So they're the important party here. So tell us again who SSS is. They issued the title insurance policy on behalf of security title. They're the issuing agent. All right. And so I think you told us what the trial level claims were there, what uh, what the claims were brought against SSS. SSS filed their motion to dismiss at the trial level and lost at that at at the trial level, correct? Yes. All right. So then take us to the appeal. What happened on the appeal? So on appeal, the appellate division ultimately reverses the refusal to dismiss. And first for the fraudulent concealment claim, they found that the judgment holder, she had failed to allege that there had been a material omission by SSS on which she had relied. And she also failed to identify that SSS owed her any duty under which it would have owed her an obligation to disclose either that the additional sale took place or that the seller had the additional alternate name. So it holds that it should have been dismissed. And then on the prima facie tort claim, the court correctly found that that requires some level of intentional act and some level of malice. They again found that the judgment holder had failed to plead either of those, specifically because she had claimed that SSS was acting to further its own financial benefit. And they found that acting in that way could not satisfy either of those requirements of malice or an intentional, uh, a desire to intentionally inflict harm. So they found that that should also be dismissed as well. And then they reversed the lower court. All right. Thank you. Anything else about this case that our listeners should be aware of? Yeah. The one main takeaway from this is that when you're pleading a fraudulent concealment claim based on a failure to disclose, you need to identify a duty posing an obligation to make that disclosure. All right. Sounds good. Yeah, I think the court really did take a look at all of the elements of the two claims here. They said, you know, here are the elements. You've got to plead each one. You've got to make sure you're hitting all these elements. And in this case, they didn't. So case dismissed. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jim. And to all of our listeners out there, thank you for joining us today on today's episode of Title Nerds. And we look forward to having you listen to us next time. Thank you, Mr. Joe Grabus. Thank you, Jim. And we'll see you all next time. Thank you for listening today to Title Nerds, presented by Riker Danzig. If you like this show, please remember to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred podcast app and be sure to rate us five stars. You may also wish to subscribe to our blog and visit our website at riker.com. 
We hope you will join us again for another episode of Title Nerds. 